0: This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. We are discussing the Pesach and the purpose of Pesach. We talked about last week. We talked a bit about the idea that freedom has a purpose. You know, there's a freedom just for the sake of freedom doesn't lead to anything. It's followed by another dictatorship. Usually people, uh, they, get, they want freedom, 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 and then they fight. And then they get another dictatorship. And they don't really know what they want. They don't really get what they want. So we want freedom. We said the Torah says, freedom, send, send out my people. Moshe tells Pharaoh, so they should serve me in the desert. So that's what Pesach is all about, freedom for a purpose. And that's why Pesach leads right into Shavuot. Uh, there's the county of the Omer, there's a connection between Pesach and Shavuot. In other words, Pesach without Shavuot is incomplete. The Ramban is the famous uh, biblical commentator, and philosopher, and uh, Talmudist, and doctor, Ramban Nachmanides from Spain, in the Middle Ages, just after Ramban Maimonides, he says a very interesting thing. He says, a Pesach is the first day of the festival, and Shavuot is the last day of the festival. And the days of the Omer are like Cholamoy. So right now we're in Cholamoy, the days between the first day and the seventh day of Pesach. But he says the whole of the Omer is like a, a Cholamoy experience. Really, the Pesach and Shavuot are really one festival, starting with the freedom from Egypt, leading to the servitude to God. So it's, it's freedom for a purpose. There is no true freedom in the world. Everyone who has responsibilities, and even if a person has no responsibilities, they will be subjugated to their desires and their whatever, their pride and other things. It's exactly what Pesach is trying to free us from. Pesach is a festival of freedom. There's a beautiful story. It says uh, American, an American goes to France. He arrives in France. and He goes to passport control, and passport control they say, "Where's your passport?" He said, "I don't have a passport." He said, "We well, can't come into the country without a passport." He said, "Well, I did last time. I landed on the beaches of Dunkirk <laughs> or Normandy. I landed on the beaches of Normandy. So, so we see that you no know one when I came last time to France, there was no one there to ask for my passport. So it's interesting that you know here's the guy, the the counter, the French uh, passport control officer, very. Hi, I'm mighty. You know, where's your passport? He said, "Last time I came, I landed on the beach. And I was part of the uh, American army that freed France from the Nazis. So, what are you going to say to you know? What are you going to say to that? That uh, how are you going to how are you going to reply? How's the guy going to reply to that? Oh, that was different. Now it's different, but it, it sort of took the wind out of his sails. You know, last time I came, I came to free you. So interesting. So, freedom is something we want." But we have to know that it has a purpose. Freedom has to have a purpose. Otherwise, it leads to tyranny, either tyranny of dictatorship or at least the tyranny of one's own desires. The person that is bound, and that's exactly what Pesah is all about, freedom. Freedom, we talked about freedom from physical slavery, freedom from spiritual slavery, which is idolatry, freedom from mental slavery, which we, we were going to talk about. It took 40 years in the desert for the Jews to be freed from mental slavery. What does that mean? That means that they were ex-slaves, Ex-slaves think like slaves. It's very hard to free that sl- that thought of slavery from a mind. Yes, master. Yes, master. Yes, master. Always looking for the master worried about the master, what the master's going to say, what the master's going to do. So that's mental slavery. And then there's emotional slavery, the emotional attachments that they make. A person makes emotional attachments to the land, to their house, so hard to leave. A you know, person uh, doesn't want to leave. Even though there's troubles, how many Jews uh, stayed uh, Whatever, we're in in different exiles. And even though there was troubles, it it was hard to leave. Emotionally attached to the land, emotionally attached to their money. It's a very big test in life not to be too emotionally attached. When God says to move, you move. Not to be emotionally attached. It's very hard. We're seeing this really unfold in front of our very eyes today, Ukraine. And uh, how many people were, you know, you can't be emotionally attached. They're detached now. There are 5 million people wandering around, uh, exiles from their country. So a person is emotionally attached. It's very simple. You, you want to be emotionally attached and be bombed. Uh, so that's spiritual freedom, physical freedom, mental freedom, and, and uh, we said uh, emotional freedom. That's why we have four cups in the Haggadah. That's why we talk about freedom. We raise our toast to Hashem, the four different languages of redemption, those four different kinds of redemption from different kinds of slavery. Anyway, so let's talk a bit about um, this week uh, we're in the seventh day of Pesach, which is interesting, and it really is a whole parasha which deals with the crossing of the sea. I want to talk a bit about that. That the Jews, I want to read a bit of the chronology. What happened? So Israel left Egypt on the morning of the fifteenth of Nisan, which is the first day of Pesach. So they did, and an, they had a little seder in the land of Egypt at night, where they ate the they ate the uh, Paschal lamb, they ate the Koran Pesach and uh, with the Maror, but they didn't really have, I don't know how much matzah they had, because the matzah was for the trip. It wasn't for the first night. So when they had in Egypt, they ate the, the pasta lamb, and then they came out the next morning, because it says that Paro, even you know, the Paro wanted to throw them out that night. They refused. Moshe Rabbeinu says, we're not leaving at night. We're not leaving like seeds at night. We're going to go in the morning. Everyone can see we're leaving as free people. So it's very important. They left, Egypt as free people in the daylight. So he left Egypt on the 15th in the morning, which is the first day of Pesach in the morning they left Egypt. And they traveled from Ramses. It says they traveled to a place called Sukkot, which is interesting because there's a place called Sukkot. There's another place called Sukkot. It says, yeah, when he went into Israel, he built a place called Sukkot, which is outside Nablus, it's outside Shechem. So interesting. So there's a place called Sukkot. There are a few places called Sukkot. So there's a connection between out of Egypt and Sukkot. Which we have to talk about what we talk about Sukkot. There is a big connection between Pesach and Sukkot, a massive connection. And then they traveled on the 16th of Nisan from Sukkot to Etam, which it says was in the desert. And on the 17th of Nisan, they go back towards Egypt and they camped at pi a And on the 18th of Nisan, Pharaoh's spies that he sent out, the what they went up to, reported, you know, the three days the Jews had asked for to serve God had uh, elapsed, and the Jews are not on the way back. So on the 19th to the 20th, Pharaoh gets his army ready, and on the 21st of Nisan, that's the seventh day of Pesach, Pharaoh and his armies catch up to the Jewish people at the night. So tomorrow night, we have to think about when we're celebrating tomorrow night, uh, that's when Pharaoh caught up to the Jewish people. On the, on the seventh night of Pesach, Pharaoh and his armies catch up to the Jewish people in the desert. We're going to talk about uh, the different reactions of the Jews when Pharaoh caught up to them. And that's when the sea split. So the seventh night of, the seventh day, it uh, started splitting at night and then they crossed the sea on the seventh night of Pesach. That's why some people stay up that seventh night, learn to run a special tikkun for the seventh night of Pesach. It's a Moroccan custom and other customs to stay up that night of Pesach. At least say the tikkun of the seventh night of Pesach. The so seventh day of Pesach is a very big day. And uh, because the Egyptians were killed, they died in the sea, we don't say full Hallel. So interesting, the only time we say full Hallel, we say full Hallel on the first day of Pesach in Israel and the first two days of Pesach outside Israel. After that, the rest of Pesach, we don't say full Hallel. Why? Because we can't say, we're not praising God when God's creatures died. We don't celebrate the death of our enemies. So even though other people celebrate the death of the enemies, we don't celebrate the death of our enemies. We celebrate the fact that we were saved. The fact that they had to die for us to be saved, that's a different issue. We're not celebrating. So our, our cup, it says, some people say that's the reason why we pour 10 drops of wine from our cups when we say the 10 plates. Why? Because our cup is not full when we remember the destruction on other people. So we're not praising God for killing the Egyptians. We're praising God for saving ourselves. And therefore, we say, half It's interesting. We're going to see there's a Midrashim. let say the angels wanted to praise God for killing the Egyptians. And God says, don't praise me when my, when my uh, creatures, my creations are being destroyed. So a very important idea, this idea of not uh, celebrating the death of even one's enemies. Very interesting idea. We should pray that our enemies should change, and not be destroyed, should change. there's a famous uh, Gemara, which talks about Buria. Buria, who is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a Jewish school in Elizabeth called Buriya for Girls, right? Buria was the wife of Rabbi Meir Balanes. She was the wife of Rabbi Meir Balanes. And one day it says that Meir Balanes was bothered by his neighbors. His neighbors were gangsters, Jewish gangsters. And uh, one day she heard him praying, Hashem, just... Get rid of my neighbors, just kill them off, you know, so they don't trouble me anymore. And she says, Meir, what are you talking about? How can you say such a thing? So he says, it's David it's, says in Psalms, Itamu that the evil should disappear from the land. So I'm praying for them to disappear. She says, it says evil should disappear from the land. It doesn't say the people should disappear from the land. Evil itself should disappear, but not the people that do evil. Pray for them to change. And that's what we have to do. We have to pray for evil people to change. That, uh, the, the, the psalm does not say that the evil doers will, will be destroyed. It says evil will be destroyed. So that's our mission. Destroy evil, not the people who do evil. They should change. The evil should be destroyed. So it says he started praying for them to change, and they changed, and they became his best students. Amazing, amazing idea that we don't celebrate the death of evil people, even though a lot of people do. And that's where we learn it from. We learn from the crossing of the sea. We don't say full Hallel. We say half Hallel. We uh, throw 10 drops of wine from our cup. Uh, when the, we say the 10 plates, our cup is not full when we remember destruction of other people. We don't want other people to be destroyed. We want to be saved, okay? We want them to change. We want the world to be a better place. That's what we want. We want people to change. Halewai, you know, all these dictators should change their minds and a little bit of brains should go into the common sense. And a little bit of yetzera talk, the good inclination should go into them and get some uh, common sense, there's rather we'll see a better world. That's the only way to get a better world is by making better people. So it's not it's not the people that fall, it's the evil that uh, they're up to that has to change. The so person has to change, has to become has to change their ways, their rather share with the Mashiach will come everyone, the world will change their ways, and we'll recognize what the right method is. It's not weapons, and it's not power, and it's not this. It's uh, humility, which is the message, one of the messages of Pesach, which is getting rid of the Hamets, getting rid of the puffiness, the ego. The ego is the thing which causes um, the break between us and God. What, what is the biggest break between us and God? It's ego. Why? The person says, I want, I want, I want what God wants. Not interested. I want, I want, it's me, 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 me. And that's why the greatest prophet had to have no ego. That's Moshe Rabbein. Moshe Rabbein is the most humble of all people. Why? Because when when he got God's message, it was not diluted through his ego. When other prophets got God's message, it was diluted through their ego. What does that mean, diluted through their ego? That means they got some kind of message and they had to interpret it. And the interpretation came through their ego. So they interpreted, that's why it says his prophecy was like watching through a clear glass, and their prophecy was a cloudy glass. What is a cloudy glass? A cloudy glass is a glass of the ego. You see through what, what I want, what's, what's, what's how my interpretation of God, you know, it's like a translator. Being a translator is a hard job, because when you translate, you can translate truthfully, or you can translate with your own spin, so that's the hard job, being a translator, being a true translator, being an honest translator. Um, and I've seen this in certain places, you know, the, the rabbi from Israel talking in Hebrew, and then the translator is giving a totally different spin on his speech uh, because and no one else will know, only the, the guy who understands the original Hebrew will understand what the original speech was, but the translator is putting spin on the speech. So the prophet's job was to give God's, clear speech over, and Moshe Rabbein was the champion. Why? He wasn't transferred through his ego. He got rid of his ego. Amazing. So that's getting rid of the Hamets That's why hametz symbolizes the ego, and that's why in Pesach we try and get rid of all the chameds. Um, and uh, when we get rid of our egos, then we get closer to God because the ego keeps us away from God. The ego keeps us away from getting the real message. We filter everything through our egos. What do I want? What do I want? It's not me. It's not I. It's Hashem, what does Hashem want? So interesting, very fascinating. And uh, so we need true freedom on Pesach. How do we get to true freedom? So this lesson of the sea, the crossing of the sea, was a tremendous uh, lesson to the Jewish people who had to get rid of their mental slavery. They had to get rid of the mental slavery. How does a, a slave get rid of his mental slavery? And the answer is only if he sees his master in front of him incapacitated. My master, my master, you know, what is a former slave, the ex-slave ran away. He's always worried about his master catching him. My master will catch me. My master will catch me. Well, at the sea, they saw their masters incapacitated. The masters cannot control them, cannot catch them anymore. They're totally beyond that. So that really affected the mental slavery aspect. They were mentally slaves. Now we have no masters. Our masters are gone. We saw our masters... Destroyed before our very eyes, the king who oppressed us. By the way, it's very fascinating because you know the the midrash, the, the rabbi, the rabbis say that the pharaoh was a very small guy. He was a midget. Pharaoh was a midget. The pharaoh of mitzrayim was a midget, and you know I was just at the Israel Museum yesterday, and they have over there statues of Pharaoh. They say Ramses the Third was the pharaoh of Egypt. And you see the statue of Paro over there. He made statues all over Egypt. It's not original statues. I think it's just a mock-up of the, of the statues they have in Egypt. And uh, you see how big he was. Man, he was massive. So the guy is telling us, you know, the, the Talmud says he was a midget. But all the statues of Egypt, all massive statues of, of Ramses III. So maybe because he was a midget, he magnified his statue. So, you know, in those days, there were no TVs. The people didn't even know what he looked like. Most people didn't know what he looked like. And therefore, he put his big statues. People think, you know, Pharaoh is such a big man. He's a really, uh, he's like a monster. He's a six foot two, six foot five. I don't know. Uh, the, the statue is, is Pharaoh sitting down. Uh, and you see the, the length of his feet. Wow, massive. I was, I was looking at his, his feet yesterday. Uh, must be a size 13, 14. I'm not sure what size it was. Definitely bigger than my feet. So I was thinking how big the guy was. But the Talmud says he was, a, he was a dwarf. And the answer is in the days before TV, everything was perception. So imagine Pharaoh built these massive statues to show everyone how big he was when he was the biggest dwarf. And that's basically ego. That was ego. That was Pharaoh's massive ego. He could take God on. He could fight with God. He could fight with the people of God and that's the ego that destroyed him in the end we're going to see that talk about it today so what happened is so on the uh, uh pharaoh is chasing after the jewish people and the midrash says something very fascinating the midrash says and uh, it's a beautiful midrash the midrash says there were four different reactions among the jews when they saw the egyptians coming after this is a wild there were four different reactions among the jews when they saw the egyptians i want to quote to you what the reactions were so the midrash says our ancestors divided into four groups on the shores of the sea one group said let's jump into the sea we'll commit suicide we're going to commit suicide we have no we see all the we see the banks of clouds the clouds thrown up by the horses of the Egyptians who are chasing us. This massive army is coming, chasing us. Let's jump into the sea and die and the see. So suicide. Imagine a person is faced by troubles. You find these four reactions are really amazing because they're psychological reactions to troubles. What do you do when you're faced by trouble? So one reaction, this is really the harshest reaction, craziest reaction is suicide. I remember the stock crash uh, in 2008, I think it was, that there were people jumping out of windows in Wall Street. I can't remember who they were, but some very wealthy people lost a lot of money, so they jumped out the window. That is not a good reaction. That is not a Jewish reaction. So, So even though the Midrash says, you know, one of the reactions when they saw the cloud of dust coming from the Egyptian chariots was to jump into the sea That's not a traditional Jewish reaction, which we're going to talk about. What is the real reaction? The one reaction was, let's commit suicide. Let's jump into the sea. Another one said, let's go back. Let's surrender. Let's go back to Egypt. You know, that's the easy way out. Let's just surrender to Pharaoh, throw ourselves at his mercy, which is a dangerous thing to do, because who says Pharaoh has any mercy? But let's go back to Egypt. That was the second one. Let's surrender. Let's go back. The third opinion says, let's make a war. Now, that was a, a strange, uh, very nice uh, suggestion. But how do you make a war when you have no experience of making war? These guys were ex-slaves. They have no experience of fighting or anything. But let's make war. But there's a lot of them. Maybe they could have won. Yeah, let's make a war. That's the third different third reaction. And the fourth reaction is, let's pray. Let's pray to God. So there's four different reaction. Now this is true in any situation where a person is faced with troubles. A person is faced with troubles. A person is panicking. What should I do? What should I do? He commits suicide. That's, uh, that's the easy way out. But that's a terrible way out. Why? It's from the frying pan to the fire. Right? A person commits suicide. But so, well, where does his soul go? So the soul goes into the lowest levels of Gehinam into hell. And the soul has no rest because the person did not achieve atonement in this world by killing himself so it's a terrible the worst situation is is committing suicide which is only allowed in certain very extreme situations where a person will face torture to break to torture is to break their belief in god so the person's facing torture um we have talked about some other time but it's a very extreme reaction it's frowned upon in jewish law suicides are not even allowed to be buried in a cemetery unless they are crazy or whatever. They're buried on the extreme edges of a cemetery far away from everyone else. So it's interesting. So it's not a good option. Suicide is not a good option. The second one is let's fight. Now, this is a very good option to fight if you're prepared. If you're not prepared, it's basically a suicide as well. So it's better to die fighting. Probably it is. But maybe there's other options as well. Uh, The third option is let's surrender. Okay, let's surrender. And the fourth option is let's cry out. Let's, let's pray to God. So this, let's see what Hashem says. This is a very interesting. So what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? Moshe Rabbeinu tells the people a very important word. And this is a very fantastic word. This is When a person is faced by difficulties in life, what should a person do? And the answer is exactly what Moshe Rabbeinu says to them. Okay. Moshe Rabbeinu says, He says two things. He says, I I want to read you the Hebrew so I won't make any mistakes over here. It's very important to quote the exact words. Number one is, don't be scared. Don't panic. It's a normal reaction of human beings faced with problems. Panic. Reply with panic. He says, don't panic. Number one, don't panic. Number two, and this is the most important word. This is the word I'm trying to look for. Hit yatzvu. Hit means stand fast, stand firm, strengthen yourselves. This is really very important. So number one, when you're faced by problems, this applies to any kind of problems. And faces. Number one is don't panic. Altiralu. Number two, hit yatzvu. Hit Connect yourself. Collect your, your uh panic and make it stand firm. Make yourself calm, calm yourself down. Be strong, be firm, calm yourself down. It's important not never to make any decisions, rash, rash decisions based on panic. The person will regret later on. You know, a person faced with panic and they do they do something rash, and later on, if there is a later on, then they regret it. So why did I do this? I, I did it out of panic. So the first thing is, don't be scared. Number two is, don't panic. Be strong, be calm. And then, Uru Hashem, ashe yase lachem See the salvation of God that he will do for you today, Moshe Rabbeinu says. What does that mean? Have emunah. Have faith in God. How does a person stay calm in times of troubles? Have faith in God. So three things he says. Number one is, don't be scared. Number two is, stay calm, collect yourself and number three is you're going to see God's salvation okay, so but there's something else that they were doing as we saw in the Midrash and that was they were crying out to God so what does God tell them, this is the most strangest reply by God Hashem says to Moshe ma titzak elai why are you crying out to me don't pray it's not a time to pray this is this is amazing. In other words, person in panic. They, well, they want to run. They want to hide. They want to this. There's a soldier outside looking for them. What do you do? Number one is stay calm. Don't get flustered. Make some rational. Try and think rationally. Try and think a thought. Have a make a. Keep yourself firm. But it's not a time to pray. A person can pray very quickly. But don't spend all your time praying. Right? A person got to have a plan. A person's got to have some rational abilities to think how do I get out of this situation? So what does God tell Moshe? Don't cry out to me. You know, there's a beautiful
1: uh, Rashi
0: in Parsha Be'alotcha where it says that Miriam, you know, Miriam talked bad about Moses. You know, the laws of Hashanah Ra, one of the ideas of Hashanah mentioned every day, I talk about every day, remembering Miriam. What happened to Miriam? Miriam was one of our heroines. She was one of the heroines of the saga of coming out of Egypt. She saved Moshe Abed's life. She saved all the children, all the boys, one of the midwives of Egypt, Miriam. And yet, you know, the Torah tells us that she spoke bad about her brother Moshe. She spoke Lashon HaRa. We learn about that. Not not to speak Lashon HaRa, we have to remember every day. Uh, I remember what happened to Miriam, this idea of not speaking Lashon HaRa. And even though she saved her brother's life and she did many good things, she was punished for Lashon HaRa. what happened is she got leprosy. And uh, Aaron... Aaron, a brother, the high priest, he says, Moshe, don't be like a rock. Don't be like an unfeeling rock. Do something. Do something. She's, your, your sister is sick. Your elder, your elder sister is sick. Do something. And what does Moshe Rabbeinu do? He praised the shortest prayer in the whole uh, Torah. Shortest prayer in the whole Torah. Five words. El na refah la. Please, God, heal her. Please. So Raja says over there, where did he learn this from? Where did he learn this concept of time? Was a time to pray and there's time for action. Right? So where did he learn this concept from? He learned it from right here under the Adesim. Hashem says, why are you praying? You're praying too much. Now is a time for action and not a time for prayer. It's very fascinating. In other words, keep the prayer to a minimum and do the action. It's a very important idea. That we have to talk a bit about Let's talk a bit about that. So it's very important to have, do the prayer, prayer, and action, and action. So have the action in mind, have the action in mind, it's very important. So, uh, and Moshe remembers this when, when he prays for Miriam, let me find a doctor, let's see what I can do, it's leprosy, what should I do, and I'll pray a very short prayer. And uh, it's another reason why he prayed a very short prayer is other people would say, you know what, pray, sister. He prayed a long prayer for us. He hardly prays, you know. So, Moshe Habeen for his own sister. He just prays five words. And those are very, very effective words. Amazing. So, it's, you see that the length of the prayer is not as important as the Kavanah, the thoughts behind it. a prayer from the heart, which is short has a tremendous power than a long prayer where there's no concentration. So it's important to pray with all one's heart. And that's where Moshe Rabbeinu remembers this, this idea. When God says over here, he says, why are you crying out? Why? Why?" So it's interesting. So that's what the Gemara says. We cannot rely on miracles. We have to have a plan. You have to put together plan, action. Action for ourselves. Action for a family. Action. Strategy. We need a strategy to help ourselves. You cannot rely on miracles. It's forbidden to rely on miracles. A person has a strategy. So a person prays. Yes, pray. As a saying, I think the British army had a saying: uh, "Pray, but keep your powder dry." And Those they had gunpowder to fire the bullets. Keep the powder dry. Make sure your powder is dry. In other words, make sure your plans and your strategy are intact. Make sure you have. Pray as well, but have a plan. And that's what we see. Don't rely on miracles. Hashem says, don't cry out to me. I will help those who help themselves. And it's very fascinating. That's what we see over here. That Hashem says, don't cry out to me. Why are you crying out to me? It's a very strange. There's lots of different commentaries over here. I just want to quote you some commentaries. Moshe Rabbeinu was praying. God says, now when Israel is in distress... It's no time for lengthy prayer. In other words, pray is good, but not lengthy prayer. Why are you praying, praying such a lengthy prayer? Everyone's in distress. Um, so there's one opinion that says, Ma, ma Eli, why are you crying out to me? So one of the countries says, why are you crying? Eli, the burden of helping them is on me. Right? It's not a time to cry. I'm going to help them. Right? So he spits this verse, Ma titzak, Eli. On me is the burden of saving the Jews, Hashem says. It's my responsibility. So you just tell them to move ahead, and I will look after them. But they have to do something. What is the something they have to do? It's something very tough. It's something very hard. And it's something, it's a message to us today. And it's a message for us people in exile. You have, you're not going to come out of exile by not doing anything. Even Egypt. We didn't come out of Egypt by not doing anything. We came out of Egypt because they were willing to put their lives on the line by slaughtering the Paschal Lamb, which we said was the God of Egypt, frankly, taking the God of Egypt and slaughtering the God of Egypt in front of the Egyptians. So they had to do something. They had to put their lives on their line to be able to get out of Egypt. That's a symbol of the blood on the doorpost. They had to walk through blood. What do you mean walk through blood? Their own mysterious efforts. They had to walk through their own blood in a sense, put their lives on the line to get out freedom is paved unfortunately with blood what does that mean we see like ukraine today they're fighting they're fighting for their freedom but if they're not willing to sacrifice there won't be freedom very simple so it has to be a willingness to sacrifice that's what god says over here go tell the jews to walk to go how are they going to go we're going to talk about that so the first idea is have a plan have an action it's time for action it's a time for prayer and time for action sforno says after the leader's Rebuked Moshe for taking them out of Egypt. Moshe cried out. He says, The people have no faith. He's telling God, you know, he's complaining. He's not just praying to God. He's complaining to God, you know, the people have no faith. I'm going to tell them to go into the sea and they're not going to listen to them. And Hashem says, You're misguided. Don't cry out to me. This is not a time to complain. It's a time for action. Tell the people what to do and they'll do it. You see, they're going to do it. So Aurachaimakadosh was Rabhaimah bin Atar famous rabbi from Morocco who came to Israel and opened the yeshiva. He unfortunately died the same year, unfortunately, tragic. And he was, he was buried in Har He was buried. People go to his uh, gravesite. very holy man. He wrote a commentary of the whole Torah, Orachim Kadosh called Orachim, the light of life, the light of the life. And uh, he says, over here, why are Israel and Moses commanded not to pray at such a dangerous time? What else does that you do when you're in danger? Don't you pray? So he says, amazing concept. He says, prayers only work where there's a little bit of, of uh, a person has some kind of merit. Prayers will only work when a person has merit. A person has no merit, prayers don't work. And here the Jews had no merit. They were, as we're going to see, the Midrash says, the angels came to God and said, these people are idolaters and these people are idolaters. Why should you say one at the expense of the other? They're both idolaters. The Jews who came out of Egypt, you have to understand, were idolaters, it's very hard well to understand. This is 210 years in a land of idolatry. Listen, I don't know how many Jews are going to come out of America. How many Jews are going to leave America intact? It's very hard to, you know, we're really losing like 50, 60 percent every year that goes by. So how many Jews could come out of America intact? So we're we're influenced by our environments. And here the Jews were in Egypt and they were immersed in, in, in this tremendous idolatrous culture, viewers. Go to the Israel Museum and see all the gods of the Egyptians. Amazing. See all the gods of the Canaanites. So. How do you stay a monotheist with no Torah, just the seven Noahide laws, and Brit Milah, and remain uh, a monotheist? It's very hard. So the Jews who came out of Egypt were really sullied by idolatry. They're on the 49th level of defilement, as it says. That's why we need the 49 days of the Omer. And that's why the Midrash says that uh, the angels told God, what's the difference between them and them? What's the difference between the Jews and the difference between the Egyptians that are both idolaters? Why should the Jews be saved? So, Orachim says, you can't pray unless you have merit. person has no merit, no point praying. I don't agree with that because there is a kind of prayer which is based on God's attribute of Hanun, which is this idea that God gives freely and with no merits. There's a way of getting Hashem answers prayers even for no merits, which is uh, called Hanun. But the merit, the, the, the Oral Haim says, the merit they're going to get is when they jump into the sea. When they jump into the sea and they show their faith in God, that is the merit that's going to save the Jewish people. So now is not a time to pray because there's no merits right now. But when they jump into the sea, I'm going to save them because then they're going to have merits. And the prayers are effective at that time. So interesting, but it's a big, big, big uh, question, philosophical question. Why did God say not to cry out to me? And the main answer is because it's a time to pray, and there's a time for action. This was the time for action. The ship says, "Don't cry out." This is a time for action. The fact that you're going to jump into the sea—we're going to talk a bit about that—and there's another midrash. This is a wild midrash. Rabeer says, says, this is the Gemara and Sota. Rabeer says, when the Israelites stood by the Red Sea, for the Red Sea, more accurate, the tribes, each one fought with the other. I'm gonna go into the sea first, right? So, and the tribe of Benjamin, it says, went into the sea first. Ramuda said to Meir, Sorry, that's not what happened. Each tribe was unwilling to be the first in the sea. It wasn't they were fighting to go into the sea, they were fighting not to go into the sea. Who's gonna go first? No one wanted to go in. Listen, who's gonna be the first to jump into the sea? Not me. I don't know about you, but but if God says to jump in. Maybe we we should reconsider. We have to have emunah. So it says that's what Rabbi Huda told Rabbi Meir. They weren't fighting to go in; they were fighting not to go in. they were fighting each not to go in. I'm not going to be the first. I'm not going to be the first one until Nachshon Ben Aminadab, who was uh, the prince of Judah, he jumps in first. And that's what the Gemara says. That's the final uh, decision of the Gemara. It wasn't the tribe of Benjamin who went in first; it was the tribe of Judah who went in first. Nachshon Ben Aminadab. But it's an interesting debate. You know, Ramea says they fought to go into the sea. Rabbi Yuduf says, no, they fought not to go into the sea. Wow. And that was an example of the contradictory nature of the people who came out of Egypt. We believe, we don't believe. We believe, we don't believe. We believe, we don't believe. Okay, so that was a kind of, we see this later on in the 40 years in the desert. They went through phases of belief and they went through phases of disbelief. Truth is, a lot of people are like that. In fact, we're all like that. We go through periods of you know, believe, yeah, we believe wholeheartedly, and then you know what? It wears off. Yom Kipuri Hashem Hu Ayokim, yeah. We say with all our hearts, Hashem is our God, we believe totally, and then the next day, you know, it gets watered down a little bit. It gets watered down. We have to reassert this belief system every single day. We have to repeat this to ourselves all the time. I really believe Hashem, you're our God, You're only unity, you're you're the God of the world, you're the God of the universe, Hashem, you're the one, you're the king. So it's interesting, we see this right through history. This is the famous debate by Meir and Rabbi Huda. Did they all believe that they're going to jump or they're not going to jump? So the answer is we go through phases. Yes, sometimes we're going to jump, sometimes not going to jump. And it's interesting, but we have to do something. We see the trigger for God's help is we help ourselves and God will help us. There's no such thing as God doing miracles for no You know, we don't deserve anything. God does miracles. No, even coming out of Egypt, we needed to do something. We needed to offer the Paschal Lamb. Even crossing the sea, the miracle did not happen until the Jewish people showed faith in God by jumping into the sea. Wow, that's amazing. It says the sea did not part until he got to his nostrils. The water got to his nostrils. amazing. Why? He had to really believe with all his heart. Hashem's going to save me. Hashem's going to save me. Then the sea split. It's like uh, rebuilding Israel, right? Uh, it took a lot of guts to declare the Israeli independence, it really took 1948, It took a lot of guts to, do. here we are, surrounded by six armies, come back with six armies, 600,000 Jews, surrounded by these hundreds of millions, and declared independence, we know there's going to be a war. It took tremendous guts to do that, Hashem says, you show the guts, you show the faith, and that's the end of the declaration of independence is without belief in Suri Yisrael, without belief in the rock of Israel. We're, to, we're signing this with belief in the Rock of Israel. And the Rock of Israel saved us, Baruch Hashem. Tremendous miracle. People say that the miracle of 48 was a bigger miracle in terms of the war than 67. People don't realize that because we really had nothing to fight with. It says they were throwing bottles out of planks. They had no bombs. They had this little gun called the Davidka. In Yushalayim, there's a, little, uh, there's a place called Davidka Square. What's a Davidka? Little, little David. Little David is a little mortar bomb. That made a lot of noise but did pretty much less, nothing else. And, and the Arabs heard the, the blast and they ran. So yeah, Miracles, miracles. They heard the, the bottles coming out of the plane. It was, it was nuclear bombs and they ran away. It's a wild miracle of 48. It was a tremendous miracle. Tremendous miracle. So thank God we're here. We have to trigger miracles. How do you trigger a miracle? You have to show faith you have to do something you can't just pray you have to do something to do to get the miracle that's what we see from the sea you have to jump into the sea so there was a big debate amongst them should we jump should we not jump listen we go through phases
1: in our beliefs
0: we have to have belief all the time so talk is cheap when it came to action that's the question what happened that's that's the greatness of uh, Nadav Avihu. Nadab and Abiyu, who jumped into the sea and showed his faith in God, and then it was followed by the whole tribe of Judah. They showed that's the greatness of Judah. They, were, they merited royalty, the tribe of Judah, because of this leadership qualities of showing faith in God. You know, the, the uh, leaders of the army have to be at the front lines. That's the Jewish, that's the Israeli concept, based on this kind of concept. Always say, "Acharai, follow me, follow me. The captains have to be at the front and on the back. Um, That's the difference between a victorious army and and an army that fails. The captains have to be the front, not the back. So, Akharai, Asnada bin Aminu. follow me. I'm the leader, follow me. It's interesting. It doesn't say that Moshe Rabbeinu was the first one into the sea. Moshe Rabbeinu says, lift up your hand and the sea will split. He lifted up his hand, nothing happened. He jumped in and then the sea split. So, he was behind, he was lifting up his hand over the sea and the sea was splitting. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So according to Rabbi Bachia, there's a whole big discussion over here what happened first. The Midrash says it didn't split until Nafshom bin amir jumped in. But there's other opinions. that say no. Orachim says that uh, as soon as Moshe Rabbeinu stretched out his hand, the Sforno, Rabbi Bachia, they say the sea split as soon as he stretched out his hand. And then the wind, the east wind came and dried the wet land. Amazing. You know, the... The Pi what we say that ten miracles happened at the sea ten miracles happened at the sea so let's talk a bit about that amazing idea that you know the sea split and there was dry land in the sea you know it's usually very muddy after the water so dried up the, all the, the water split and then the waters uh, made two solid walls on either side uh, there's many miracles happen at the sea it says instead of one Passage, one big passage, it actually split into 12 passages. Each tribe should go through its own passage and they could see each other because the water turned into glass. Ten miracles, imagine. One of the miracles was that they wanted to, to drink clear water. This, this, the, the sea was a salt sea. The red sea, the reed sea, is a salty sea. And they wanted to drink water. They could drink water from the walls of the sea. They put their mouths to the sea and it turned into water fresh, clean uh, filtered water, Amazing. So, uh, okay. So interesting. Miracles happen in the sea. So one of the things we talk about, we sing this song. We sing this amazing song. this song is part of our prayer book every single morning. Every single morning we sing this song that the Jews sang at the sea, when the sea split. Amazing. They sang this song at the end when they came out of dry land and they saw the whole uh, devastated the Egyptian army in front of their very eyes. They sang this song. As Yashir Moshe then, Moshe and B'nai Israel sang this song. Okay, we've got, a, we've got a few problems over here. Number one is, what is a song? What is a song? So the rabbis talk about 10 kinds of songs. 10 kinds of songs. The Torah's definition of a song is very profound. It doesn't say the book of T'Eli songs. Interesting. This is one of the songs in the Torah, one of the 10 songs in the Torah. From the beginning of creation to the end of the of the, of the Tanakh, there's only 10 songs, right? So what is the Torah's concept of song? And the answer is when you see, when a person can see and fathom God's as the conductor of the world, when you can see finally, you know, what does God want? What is God up to? And you can see clearly what God is up to. And you can see that God is conducting all the forces of nature in the world. And God is the conductor of the orchestra. Then you can see an orchestra and then you can sing. That is the song. The song is when a person has clarity of vision to see the whole picture and see God conducting his orchestra. Human history is like an orchestra. We don't really realize. It. We don't see. We don't see how everything meshes together. We talked a bit about this on Purim, you know how the Migula is revealing the hidden. It's revealing how all these different incidents added up to, to a big picture. And that's so. Then, when you see this big picture and realize there's a conductor behind everything, then we sing songs. That's the real song. That is the song of everything coming together. That all nature comes together. And the works of God all come together, praise God. So that's the song we sing when we see that. We see nature as a song of God, then we can sing a song. So As Yashir Moshe is a beautiful song we sing every single day in our prayers. But what's interesting is, it's in the future tense. As Yashir Moshe the says, then Moshe will sing with an Israel. you mean he will sing, What is he's going to sing? He says, when the dead arise. At the resurrection of the dead, it says, all the Jews will sing at that time. Wow, Imagine we'll see all our relatives. We lost our relatives, our father, mother, whatever. Grandparents, we'll see our relatives, we'll see all Am Yisrael get up, all the Sadiqim, we'll see Moshe Abraham we'll see everyone get up. It's going to be a terrific song. Moshe Abenu himself will lead us in another song. That's why it's in the future tense. This is one of the proofs in the Talmud for the revival of the dead. Why is it saying the future Moshe will sing? And the answer is yes, he's going to sing again. You know, this is a very comforting thought, especially after the Holocaust. We Jews don't believe, we believe that when you bury someone, you are planting them. It's like a tree. When you bury someone, you're planting a tree. And one day that tree will give fruit and that person will come back. That's a wild, it's a wild belief. one of the 13 principles of faith. That our mum brings down. This idea of the revival of the dead is a very comforting thought. One day I'll see my parents again. The truth is we're going to see them again in the spiritual world. But it's not going to be only a spiritual world. We're going to see them again in the physical world, in the physical body. Esrat Hashem. Okay, we'll see everything we say every, every day in the Shmon three times a day. Blessed are you, Hashem, who revives the dead. We believe in the revival of the dead. In fact, today we're seeing the revival of the dead. We're seeing on a different level. We're seeing the revival of the Jewish people as a nation. That's, this is the revival of the dead. This is part of the revival of the dead. As the vision of Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel, the prophet says, Hashem, if you want them to live, they will live again. The house of Israel is living again. Baruch Hashem, we're breathing as a nation in our land. It's a miracle after 2,000 years. It's a massive miracle. So it's a kind of revival of the dead. But then we're going to see the real revival of the dead dead oh, people actually coming out of cemeteries that's wild says so we'll see the bones coming out first and sinews and the whole body is reconstructing itself wow that's going to be a wild kind of <laughs> if you can take if you can stand the sight of that it's like a miraculous vision wow poor. amazing but it's already there if you want to look it up it's in the book of ezekiel you look up his vision of the dry bones in the valley of dura and you can see over there how he how he how he you know he actually gives like a Uh, like he describes exactly how the bones come together and then, you know, the sinews and the muscles are being built on the bone. Amazing, amazing. So we see suffering and we see evil and we wonder how they can be the handiwork of a merciful God. But sometimes the flash of insight and the pieces of the puzzle fall into place and we see God's music. We see the orchestra of God. We see every piece coming in to make a message for us. And that's when we sing song. So why is the song in the future? Because you have to imagine the Jews came out of Egypt. The Talmud says, Hamushim alu b'nei'shem Mitzrayim. That's what it says. One fifth of the Jews came out of Egypt. Four fifths died in a plague of darkness. So now can you imagine this, the feeling of the Jews who came out of Egypt? What about all my relatives who didn't come out? What about my fifths of the Jewish people who died in Egypt? What are we gonna do? So this is a little bit of a hint to them. There's a revival of the dead. As shared, a the revival of the dead, don't worry. One day you'll see them, all the Jews died in Egypt, we're going to see them, all the Jews died in the Holocaust, we're going to get back up. We're going to see everyone, everything's going to come back together again. There's Radha you'll see this final kind of uh, Nechama. Nechama is consolation. This is the consolation Hashem says, don't worry. This is just part of the picture. You're going to see the full picture, and then you're going to sing a song. It's going to be an amazing song at the end of the days, a true song when we may see what's going on. But uh, that's one little idea. This idea of the future song is built into this song of the sea. So the future song, this is one of the songs of our people that we sing every day, but it's going to be a, a superb song at the end of time as well. And then we get to talk about a very interesting idea. So this uh, the the uh, this song of the sea has different parts to it. The structure of the song is going to talk a bit about. So it has few themes in this in the song number one is general praise of god as the mighty savior of our people our forefathers before whom no force can stand so praise of hashem mighty god nothing can stand in god's way that's number one number two a review of the miracles that accompanied the cross this sea so there's other miracles that accompanied how right how Pharaoh was the, whatever other destroyed and uh, vanquished. So there's miracles that accompany the splitting of the sea. Number three is Pharaoh's plan and pursuing the nation and the utter failure of his plan. Talks about his plan, what he wanted to do, and how Hashem destroyed his plan. And number four, the reaction of now the neighbors around them, the Canaanites and the other peoples around them. Uh, that they were scared, stiff. When they heard about the destruction of the Egyptians at the sea, they became terrified. And number five this is interesting. This is in the song as well Israel's future as God's nation, in the land of Israel, even the building of a better It's already inside the song. So it said the song is not just a regular song, it's a song of prophecy. It says, All the Jews at the sea became prophets, and even the maidservant of the sea became a greater prophet. Then the prophet Ezekiel, this is wild. We all became prophets at the sea. We witnessed the crossing of the sea and we were filled with this, this uh, spirit of divine spirit that gave us prophecy. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So there's five different parts of this song. And I just want to talk about one of the parts, which is very interesting. We learn an interesting halakha. At the end of the song,
1: there's a line that
0: says, Zekeli this is my God and I will beautify him. Imagine, this is my God. They, had a, they could point with a finger and say, this is my God. What does it mean you can't point to God? How do you point to God? They knew with uh, knowledge. They didn't just believe. They, could, they felt God. This is God. I feel him right now. I feel God. This is God. I can point to him. This is my God, and I will beautify him. How do you beautify God? The rabbis say, by doing beautiful mitzvot. That's amazing concept. I'm doing beautiful. Disposal. In this song itself here, the Jews came out of Egypt. They just crossed the sea. And what are they saying? Zekeli, this is my God. How do I react to God if I know there's a God? When I do a mitzvah, I'm going to do it the best possible way. Right? So when you, when you appreciate someone, you want to buy them the best present. You want to really wrap it up, put it uh, nicely, a beautiful box, make it as nice as possible. So that's the wrappings of the mitzvah, very important. This is my God, and I'm going to beautify God. So, why is this relevant to the crossing of the sea? So, we said before the Mishnah says there were 10 miracles at the crossing of the sea. And the 10 miracles, God did not have to do 10 miracles. God could have done just one miracle at the crossing of the sea. The Mishnah says there were 10. Why? Because when God does a miracle for us, He does it in the best possible way. He wraps His gift in 10 wrappings. Interesting. So he did a beautiful miracle for us, and we are now reciprocating. When we do a mitzvah, we're going to do a beautiful mitzvah. we'll celebrate the rest of Pesach in a beautiful way, in a peaceful way, in a happy way. We'll hear good news from around the world. there's no more wars, uh, universal peace. You know, the man will beat out our swords into plowshares. and make this world a better place. And then we can sing this song. Final song of praise to that this You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by Torahanytime.com.